The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This morning I want to go to Mark, the 13th chapter, and we're going to look at this chapter. Hopefully we'll be able to look at the whole chapter this morning. But in Mark, the 13th chapter, we find Jesus speaking of the last days. The last days. The subject that I want to preach to you about this morning is the last days. We've already made mention in the song service and in the remarks following that, that our attitude ought to be one of focusing upon not our present circumstances, but upon that which is coming one day. In Mark, the 13th chapter, <clears throat> It says, as we begin reading in verse 1, As he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. These disciples, as, and rightly so, were impressed with the workmanship of this temple. I'll, I'll say a little bit more about the temple uh, in a minute, but uh, they were looking at the things that they could see, and they were impressed by them. But Jesus gives them an unusual answer. He gives them an interesting answer. He gives them ultimately an encouraging answer. He says to them in verse 2, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? As I said to you, I want to preach to you about the last days this morning. Now, sometimes when you hear a preacher get up and say, I want to preach about the last days, you're thinking, oh man, this is going to be like a movie. This is going to be like a, 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 an apocalyptic type uh, theater. But so much that we read about in regards to the last days out there in the world is like that. It's like theater. It's very entertaining. Sometimes it's very scary. Sometimes it's very upsetting and makes us anxious. But beloved, that's not what I want to talk about this morning because I don't believe that's what Jesus is telling us here. Let me just say this, and, and, and I, I won't belabor it too much, but just to say this, we believe in a simple gospel. Jesus died to save his people from their sins. Period. End of story. We believe in a simple worship. We believe in coming here and not having uh, bands and entertainment and all kinds of things that the world may think is important. We believe in coming here and preaching and praying and singing and fellowshipping and loving one another. And it's a pretty simple worship. When it comes to the end of days, it's no more complicated than that either. <laughs> it's very simple. Jesus is coming back, period, end of story. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. And I realize, and we'll talk about that in a minute, there are ministers out there that have made a career on great prophetic pronouncements and prophecies. And let me just say this about prophecy. Everywhere you read about prophecy, in the Old Testament particularly, and it applies to the New Testament, Prophecy is always best interpreted in hindsight. A lot of those old 
prophets didn't really know what they were prophesying exactly. They understood that the general gist of it, but they didn't understand exactly what was going to happen. The old prophet, and yes, Job was a prophet. God gave him some insight into things. He gave him, that's all a prophet is, is someone who is able to tell forth the things that God has given him. And sometimes that means telling the future, and in Job's case it was. He said, in one place, he said, I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? Brother Buddy covered that pretty well last, uh, in a sermon a week or two ago. And, uh, and you know, how should, he said, I know it's so that man can be just, but I don't know how. God's so great, we're so, so much sinners, how can it be? And, and he, but then he said this in chapter 19 of Job, he, says, he said, uh, Yea, though the skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. He knew it was coming. You say, Job, what is the name of the babe in the manger going to be? He'd say, I don't even know what you're talking about, a manger. <laughs> he didn't understand the details. He didn't get it all right. But guess what? He knows now. <laughs> and we do because we have been able to interpret prophecy and see what those prophecies were all about in hindsight. Prophecies are always best interpreted in hindsight. So don't get hung up on prophecies. And the other thing that I want to say about this not just this chapter, but particularly this chapter, but in general it applies to everything. Every single thing that Jesus said will be fulfilled to the detail. He's prophesying here in chapter 13 about what will happen to the Jews, both in the near future and in the end of times. So let's talk about the last days. Let's talk about the last days. Let's look first. I want to first talk to you a little history, okay? Tell you a little history about the last days of the temple itself. Now here they are going out of the temple, and they're going out for the last time before the crucifixion. According to what we read in the Word of God in these Gospels, we don't read of another time when Jesus goes back into this temple. And the disciples here are marveling at the outward beauty of that temple. And by the way, there's much here in this first little account that sums up the whole purpose of Jesus coming here, it was not about the outward or the earthly, but it was about the inward and the spiritual. It was not about political or social reform. It was about reform of the heart. It was about reform of, of the way they were looking at things, you see. When he said, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying you need to change your whole way of thinking. Now, I understand he's talking to those who've been born again because only those that have been born again are able to change their way of thinking. Otherwise, a natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. But if you've been born again, you need to change your way of thinking about the Messiah. That's what he's saying. I'm here, and I'm not what you expected. <laughs> look at the temple. Lord, look how beautiful it is. I mean, I could stand here today and do the same thing to you about our building. Look at the building, and it is glorious. It's, it's, it's beautiful. I'm so thankful for it. They were thankful for the temple, and they should have been. They should have, been uh, uh, they should have revered the temple to the extent that they understood this was the place where God had chosen to engage in the public, for his people to engage in his public worship. But it was still just a thing. It was still outward beauty and not inward. Now, this particular temple, this is not Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed back in uh, around uh, 
uh, in the 500s B.C., I'll put it that way. When the Babylonians came in, they destroyed that temple. And then, of course, you know, back in about 550 B.C., the Jews were allowed to go back home from Babylon and rebuild that temple. And this, the basic portions of this temple that were important were rebuilt about 550 B.C. About 15 years before Jesus was born, Herod the Great, it's a different Herod than the Herod Antipas later, but Herod the Great undertook a massive renovation of the temple and the temple mount, the plateau on which it sat. By this time, according to history, by the time that we're reading about here in chapter 13 of Mark, it was mostly finished, but all the details wouldn't be finished till about 67 AD, which was about 30 years after Jesus uh, made these statements here. Now, you also need to understand something else. In 66 AD, what they started out calling the Jewish revolt and turned into the Jewish war began. And the Jewish war, it, it was so called by the Romans because the Jews in Jerusalem and elsewhere in Canaan and Palestine revolted against the Roman Empire and it turned into not just some minor insurrection, it became a major war over there. You may have heard the stories of the last battle, which was the Battle of Masada. Masada was a, 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 a fortress up in the mountains that uh, was almost impossible to get to, but you've got to remember the Romans were ingenious. And they were able to build a road and build uh, access to it over a long period of time, and ultimately... Those Jews at Masada, rather than submit to defeat by the Romans, committed mass suicide. They killed themselves to the person. I think there was maybe one or two, I think one person remaining that was able to tell the story, uh, one woman. But, uh, but anyway, be that as it may, and Masada was the ending of that war. It was the last battle that, that, that occurred, and it was a siege over several, several months and maybe a couple of years' time. But as far as Jerusalem goes... Okay, the Jews began to revolt in AD 66, and Nero was still the emperor. He sent a man named Vespasian, who was a great general at the time. He, he sent Vespasian with several of his legions to Jerusalem and to, to Judah, and he began to contain the revolt. And ultimately, he started the siege of Jerusalem. But then Nero dies, and Vespasian goes back to Rome. He kind of interrupts the siege, or you know, the siege continued, but the war didn't really progress too much during the months that he was gone. So Vespasian goes back to Jerusalem, and he becomes emperor. And he appoints his son, Titus, who ultimately became emperor after Vespasian, by the way. But he appoints his son, the general Titus, to take over the Jewish war, and so Titus, in A.D. 70, allowed many Jews to go into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, but then he refused to let them leave. And then later on, in August of A.D. 70, Titus stormed the city, he starved out the residents first, and he committed great atrocities. His men committed great atrocities in murdering many, many Jews in that day. Now, what's all that got to do with anything? Here's a detail that I found very interesting. Listen to this. So the Romans looted all the temple treasures, and the temple itself burned, and the gold that adorned different walls in the temple melted and got down into the cracks of the stones, even the stones in the pavement. So guess what the Romans did? Those Roman soldiers tore that temple apart stone by stone. 
And they tore up even the pavement, stone by stone by stone, to get to that melted gold. Jesus was not exaggerating when he said, There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that Jesus knew what he was talking about? You know, that ought to teach us a great lesson. Things that Jesus says may go contrary to the world's wisdom out there, but guess what? He's always known what he was talking about. He's always gotten it just exactly right, and he got this right, right down to the very details. See, the temple, is some, this, is, this is some three decades later that this is going to happen, okay? But we're talking about here the last days of the temple. The temple itself is about to be gone. It's about to be destroyed. And the destruction of the temple was so complete in A.D. 70 that we really don't know even today exactly where it's at. The general location is known. But unlike most other ruins of most other, you know, you, you know where, the, um, uh, where the temple of Athena is uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in, uh, in Greece. You know where the, uh, there's still something left of the Colosseum in Rome. But we, there, most other ruins are known, at least the location. But there's nothing left to precisely define the building of the temple. The temple began as a center of true worship for the Jews, and it ended up as a den of thieves back over in Mark 11. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 9 told us about the glory of the latter house, the glory of this new temple that would be greater than the glory of the former temple. He, he, you know, the, the, when they rebuilt this temple in about 550 AD or BC, 550 BC when they returned from Babylon, there were some older people there, some older men that had seen the Solomon's temple and they wept because this temple didn't look anything like Solomon's temple, but Haggai said it's going to be more glorious. But you know what they missed? The reason it was more glorious was not because it was so big and so massive and so ornate and, and so perfectly built. The glory of this temple was going to be that the Son of God Himself would adorn it. The Son of God Himself would walk in it. That's what He's been doing here. He's been teaching in it. He's been casting out the den of thieves that was in it. He's been restoring their view of it. And now He walks out of it and He says, this temple is going to be cast down at this point they could write Ichabod which means the glory has departed over the doors of that temple the disciples and all the Jews expected the Messiah and even his own disciples expected Jesus to come in and destroy the Romans and Jesus tells them the Romans are going to destroy Jerusalem the last days of this earthly place you see and that's part of what he's talking about but that's not all <clears throat> not only is he talking about the last days of the temple but he's also talking to them he begins he uses this as a launching pad to start telling them about the last days of the earth start telling them about his second coming and he gives them three instructions about this whole thing and let me say to you this is the these are the same three instructions we need today when it comes to end times and it comes to understanding these end times prophecies. And first of all, it is do not be deceived. Number one, do not be deceived. Don't let men deceive you. Number two, take heed to yourselves as you wait for the second coming. 
And number three, watch and pray as you wait for the second coming. There's some things here we need to do today that he told the disciples then they should do. So let's look at it as, as our time's getting short here. Verse 5, Jesus answering. You remember in verse 4 they said, Tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled. So Jesus launches into the answer. Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed lest any man deceive you. That's the first thing. Take heed lest any man deceive you. Be forewarned, disciples. There will be deceivers who will come. And the overarching theme of this whole chapter here about the end times, and I suggest to you the overarching theme that you ought to keep in mind as we think about the end times is don't be deceived. Men will come to deceive you. Verse 6, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Look, he's saying people will deceive you. When it comes especially to the end times, I think there's just something about us that likes that kind of talk. They like to look into these kinds of things. It's intriguing to me to get on the internet and read about all the various theories about end times that are out there. It's intriguing to me to read the books. I've, I have, have done that in the past. I've learned, though, through the years that you, may, you have to be so careful because people who are talking about end times will deceive you, sometimes not intentionally, sometimes absolutely intentionally. I know some that try to make a living out of it. Some on TV, televangelists that think they've got it down, one or two I can think of have made a whole ministry. A whole, their whole ministry is about uh, scaring God's people into sending money because of the end times that are coming. <laughs> he said, people will deceive you. Many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And look at verses 7 and 8. When ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled. For such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. He's saying, not only will people deceive you, events will deceive you. Listen now, if I were to sit down and you were to say to me, what do you think about the Lord coming back? I'd start thinking about the pandemic, and I'd start thinking about politics, and I'd start thinking about earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes and all that kind of thing, and I'd say, hey, he's fixed to come back. <laughs> And I'd be trying to set a date on it, you see. Now, now, understand something before I go any further. We ought to always be living as if he's about to come back. But when you come to somebody who's saying, oh, this is when it's going to happen, <laughs> then you can know from the outset, if anybody says this is the date that it's going to happen, you know, one thing you know for sure, Brother Glennon, is that ain't the date. <laughs> That's probably not the date that he's coming back. But events will deceive you. It'll make you upset. It's not only going to deceive you about the Lord coming back. That actually, we're going to see, ought to be an exciting thing. But it'll deceive you about how you ought to be living in this time. It'll make you fearful. It'll make you anxious. It says, When ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled, for such things must needs be. But the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrow. <laughs> Did I say from the outset this is supposed to be an encouraging message? <laughs> I want you to understand this is supposed to be encouraging. That doesn't sound real encouraging yet, does it? You say, you're telling me all the famines and the wars and the problems that I'm seeing are just the beginning of sorrows? <laughs> yes, I'm telling you that, but there's some encouraging news coming. We may not get this all done in one message. There's too much here. 
There is some point that will be called the last days. Now, when is that? What does the Bible say about that? I, I want you to look back with me just for a minute, and we'll take just a few minutes to explore this issue because I think it's important that you understand that we understand that we are now living in those last days. That those last days began with Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, and they are still here today. Now, many will tell you those last days haven't gotten here yet, but, beloved, I believe it's clear from Scripture that we are living in these last days. So, back in Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 1, listen to this. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I've preached from this before, and I've, you've heard Brother Buddy and others preach from this, and I want you to understand what this is pointing us to here is the church age. It's pointing us to that which is coming at the end of, of, the, of the time of the Old Testament, the time when the change is coming, so to speak, from the Old Testament economy under the law, and it's pointing us to the, to the fact that there's coming a time called the last days when the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. You say, is this talking about a literal specific place? It can't be. Have you ever seen water flow uphill? <laughs> These nations are going to flow unto it. <laughs> They're going to flow up unto it. Beloved, water doesn't flow uphill. This is talking about a spiritual time when the church will be here. And in fact, it tells us the same thing in Micah chapter 4. And in the references to some future era of time sounds a whole lot like the church doesn't it <laughs> sounds a whole lot like this spiritual house that the Lord has established what else you got brother Chris well let's see what Joel says about things in Joel chapter 2 let's begin reading in verse 28 <clears throat> and it shall come to pass afterward now let me stop right there the word afterward is the same Hebrew word used in Isaiah chapter 2 in Micah chapter 4 to talk about last days. It's translated last days there. Here it's translated afterward, but it means the same thing. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord has said and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call and this is pointing to some great last days isn't it this is pointing to some time well I guess that's talking about something 2,000 years from the time of Christ Turn with me over to the book of Acts, and let's see if that's so. Let's look in the second chapter of Acts. When is this last days coming? When, are these, when is this time of afterward going to be here? 
In Acts chapter 2, we begin reading in the very first part of that about a time on the day of Pentecost when tongues as of fire and, as, and, and a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind came down upon the disciples and they began to preach in other tongues. That doesn't mean babbling. That means they were preaching in languages that they didn't know and that other people could understand. And it says they were filled with the Holy Ghost and they began to, do, to talk as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then Peter stood up. And he began to preach that great message on the day of Pentecost. And he starts out in verse 14. He says, Ye men of Judea, this is Acts chapter 2 and verse 14. Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. You know, I grew up hearing that those things in Joel were things that were going to happen at the end of days, that it was going to be some other last days, some new era that's coming in. But beloved, Peter says here that even in the time immediately after the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension back to yonder world, that in that day, those were those last days. Notice that that's how he even translates it here. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And you can go on reading down through verse 21, and it's an exact quote almost of Joel. So when are the last days? Beloved, we're living in the last days. We're living in these days that we're talking about here. We're told in Hebrews that, that God who at sundry time and in a diverse manner spake in time past unto us by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want you to understand that we are now in an era that we call or can call the last days. It's what the Bible calls it at least. The church age, the age of the church is the last days. So let's look at what Jesus says about these last days. The first thing he says is take heed not to be deceived. Don't let anybody deceive you. Be forewarned they're coming. Then he says in verse 9, but take heed to yourselves. So first of all, don't be deceived. And while you're living in these last days and you're dwelling here waiting on the Lord to come back, Take heed to yourselves as you wait for the second coming. What should we be spending our time doing? Some think we should be agonizing over every little sign, every little detail of prophecy, trying to figure out what's going on and set a date for the Lord to come back. Others think we ought to just be living it up, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But what should you do? What should we do? We're told in chapter, this same chapter down in verse 32, we'll get to it in a minute. He says, Of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. I, I, I remember reading a pamphlet back in the 80s. Uh, it was in 1988. Uh, I think it was a hundred and something reasons why the Lord will come back on like September 1st, 1988. I've still got that at home. I get it out and have a good laugh over it every once in a while. <laughs> This man believed that, though. He absolutely believed it. And, of course, then he, then he wrote another pamphlet later after the Lord didn't come back, so-and-so number of reasons why he didn't come back, you know. I guess you don't make money one way, you make money another way. 
But he, so they were trying to set dates. But I can promise you, beloved, when a man sets a date, you can forget about that date. Of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son. Isn't that amazing? Now, listen, look, this does, not, this does not diminish God's omniscience. Notice the Father knows. But the, the Son, in the same way he laid aside his glory to come down here, laid aside that piece of knowledge, apparently, in his own mind, so that only the Father knows when he's to come back. So, back in verse 9, take heed to yourselves, because look what's going to happen. They shall deliver you up to councils. And in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. So there's going to be tribulations. There's going to be persecution. We will be persecuted. Jesus said, in this world ye shall have tribulations. There'll be terrible trials. And according to Matthew chapter 24, which also has an account of this same episode here, this same account, uh, he says, because, of, uh, because persecution shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Don't do that. Listen, I felt myself cooling off over the past year. I felt a cooling off of my spirit over the time of this persecution, this tribulation that we've been through with this pandemic and with politics and all the problems out there. And I've had to remember this and say, don't let that happen. Don't wax cold. Don't let your love wax cold. Our love for one another ought not to wax cold, beloved. Certainly our love for God should not. But there's going to be tribulations. And the gospel must first be preached or published among all nations. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do want to say this. <laughs> do you notice the purpose of all the trials or the overlying theme running through all the trials? We will be persecuted. But even in the persecution, the gospel must be preached. You say, boy, I don't believe I could, there's any way I could preach the gospel if I were being persecuted. When we get to heaven, let's talk to Stephen a little bit. Let's talk to Stephen. Stephen preached one of the greatest messages. In fact, it's the only message we have any record that he ever preached while he was in the midst of persecution. He kept his testimony. He kept his focus on the Lord. And in fact, when he was about to die, he looked into heavens and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, I don't know all about that, but I've heard Brother Buddy say many times, and I like to think of it this way. It's like when, you, when one of your children's being persecuted, you stand up and you get to looking down at them. You, you know, if they're out there and some bully's trying to beat them up, you're not going to just sit there. You stand up. I believe that's what the Lord does when his children are being persecuted. He's not just impassive and doesn't care he's standing up and he's looking for for this dear one to come home to be with him and then look at verse 11 so uncle Mackey, you'll remember these this verse and you'll remember how it was used but when they shall lead you and deliver you up take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak neither do ye premeditate but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour that speak ye for it is not ye that speak but the holy ghost so I guess that means preachers shouldn't study, right? <laughs> I guess that means that don't study the Bible because the Lord's going to open your head up and pour in what he wants you to preach. That's the way it's been used in the past. I've heard people say it that way. They say, well, see there, when you get up to preach, listen to me. <clears throat> if you're going to preach up here, please study. Please. If you're going to introduce services, please prepare something. Because I don't want to get a, you know, I've always... <laughs> 
I've heard them say that preachers in the past would get up and say, well, I'm just ignorant and I just don't know anything, and then they'd open their mouth and proceed to prove it. <laughs> if I didn't study and I didn't prepare, it would be a mess. Now, there, not, listen, there are times when the Lord bless, has blessed me to preach the gospel better than when I prepared. He'll, he'll put something on my heart, put something on my mind between the pew and the pulpit, and, and praise God, he is, he is so blessed when he does that. But you know what? It's never something I've never read about. God doesn't say, okay, you, that old verse over in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 1 that you've never read, I'm going to let you preach on it tonight. See, the preparation still has to be there. But listen now, when they deliver you to the magistrates, okay, when they bring you down before the courts, you don't have to worry about it. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying here, if they take you down to persecute you, and they don't be worried, don't be anxious, don't say, what in the world am I going to say? Because I will be with you. The Holy Ghost will give you what you need at the time. Now, when they start persecuting me, I don't have to study. When they start persecuting you, you don't have to study. The Lord's going to be with you. I hope you have studied. I hope that when I go to be persecuted, I'm not, I'm not blank on the scriptures. But listen, he will give you what you need. That's not what those old preachers that used to say that. I, I, I love them dearly, but they didn't know what they were talking about. And he says, now the brother shall betray the brother to death, the father, the son, and children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. Thank God we don't have that right now going on. But you know what this is telling me? Parent, you know, I've, I tell you what I've seen. I've seen parents die to the kingdom of God because of their children. I've seen parents leave the kingdom of God because they say, well, I know the truth is preached here at this little simple church but there's a bigger church over here that's got a better youth program and i've just got to go over there and take my kids over there so they can get more involved and die to the kingdom of god i've seen families split up over doctrine but you know what he says you stay steadfast verse 13 ye shall be hated of all men for my sake my name's sake but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now, I'll come back to that in a minute. We're not talking about eternal salvation here. But he's talking about it, the kind of salvation that we need every day, which is deliverance. It's being delivered into the sweet fellowship of God. It's because of that kind of, that kind of perseverance, that kind of uh, faithfulness that we can stand uh, on, the, on the chopping block and sing praises to God. We can be tied to the stake about to be burned as some of those old martyrs were singing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me as the, as the wood was lit and the smoke was burning and the flames were licking around their boots. They could still sing praises to God. That's a deliverance, beloved. But he's saying here, don't you, don't you be anything but steadfast. You be faithful, even if your children, even if your parents, even if your brother. In this case, they were being delivered actually to death. In our case, praise God, we're not suffering yet before the magistrates. But you stay faithful no matter what. Verse 14. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take, I'm going to skip some of this just for a lack of time. But verses 14 through down about verse 20, I believe, is a specific 
reference to what happened in 70 A.D. In 70 A.D. Notice in verse 14, But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him that is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house. And let him that is in the field not turn back again for to take up his garment. But woe to them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. And pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. For in those days shall be affliction such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created unto this time, neither shall be. And except the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he hath chosen, the, he hath shortened those days. Now, I don't want to go too deep into this. I believe that this does immediately and specifically apply to what happened in 70 AD, but it also applies generally to everything that will happen to God's people throughout the whole of the last days, the persecutions and the tribulations. But notice that abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. What's he referring to there? I believe that's talking about the Roman soldiers who invaded the Holy of Holies and, and tore that place apart. There was actually another event like that in, in years past, uh, some two or three hundred years earlier, where that uh, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes had sacrificed a pig on the altar of God. And what an abomination that was uh, to, the, to the law of God and to those, uh, those Israelites that lived there. Well, this here, I believe, you're seeing the Gentiles in the Holy of Holies where they were completely forbidden according to the law. Of course, all the law had been fulfilled to a jot and to tittle by Christ and it was no longer in effect but the Jews thought it was but regardless of whether but regardless of whether this is talking just about AD 70 or about all of the tribulations and the troubles he's saying just know that it's coming know that it's coming and in verse 21 he says then when all this happens if any man shall say to you lo here is Christ or lo he is there believe him not for false Christs and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. But look at verse 23. But take ye heed. Behold, I have foretold you all things. He's saying, don't be shaken by what's happening. Around the time of Jesus' death, there were many deceivers claiming to be the Messiah. And does that not still continue to this day? David Koresh, Jim Jones, the Reverend Sun Young Moon, all these that are out there that claim to be Jesus. It says, then, verse 21, if any man shall say to you, lo, here is Christ, or lo, here he, there he is, this, is, this then can apply to any time, whether 70 A.D. or the end of time. False Christ, he says, may be able to do signs and wonders, some little minor miracles, but don't you be deceived by that. And he says in verse 23, you beware, you take heed, because I've told you what's coming. What's that all about? Do you know what a doctor does? A doctor sits down with you and says, okay, here's what's fixing to happen. I'm going to make this incision here, and I'm going to take this out there, and when I sew you back up, you're going to have this kind of pain. And you're going to have this kind of fatigue. You may get a fever. You may have tremors. You may have this problem or that problem. Don't worry about it. Don't be upset about that. I'm telling you ahead of time, 
that this is coming and you don't have to be too so guess what when a doctor does his job and tells you about the the effects of whatever surgery or procedure they're going through and you start having those effects you don't go crazy you don't call 911 you don't go running off like a chicken with your head cut off saying the sky is falling or something like that because you've been told ahead of time there's more here that I want to preach to you about, but I don't have time this morning to go through it. Maybe tonight we'll finish it up. But I'll tell you this, beloved. This message this morning needs to be an encouraging message. I want to leave you with this. This is, say, preacher, how do we look at this? Well, I'm fixing to tell you some really good news. I'm going to tell you about how the, how the world is going to end and the Lord is coming back and how that all these things are going to end up good for us. But this is what I want to leave you with this morning. I'll never forget about 20, 25 years ago, I was at a church meeting somewhere. It may have been up at Meta Branch. It may have been at another church. And after the, after the meeting was over, we were standing around outside. And this was during the time of David Koresh. This was during the time of that Waco, Texas stuff when he was claiming to be Jesus. And some of the men were standing out there, and I was listening to them talk, and Brother Oliver Junkin was there. And those men were talking about, can you believe that? David Koresh, can you believe this other person talking about himself, making himself to be Jesus? And Mr. Oliver, Brother Oliver was quiet for a minute. And they got through talking. He said, well, I want to tell you something. He said, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> and I was like, what? You're glad to hear about people claiming to be Jesus? He said, yes, sir. I'm glad to hear it because my Bible says when that starts a happening, he's a fixing to come back. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, beloved, the world may be in a mess. When you hear all these things, don't let it throw you off because just like Brother Oliver, we can have excitement. We can be greatly anticipating the fact that he's fixing to come back. Praise God for his promises and his prophecies. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.